All right, having said that, let's turn to Titus chapter 2 and verse 13 for our final message, the blessed hope. In Titus 2.13, Paul says, Looking for that blessed hope and glorious appearing of the great God and our Savior, Jesus Christ. That phraseology, blessed hope, is only found in the Pauline revelation. It's exclusively truth that has been given to us as members of the church, the body of Christ. And so we have an upward calling. We have a heavenly hope. Now, as we have been seeing, that could not be said of these saints in prophecy. They have an earthly hope. But we have the heavenly inheritance that has been given to us by God the Father. Now let's turn to 1 Thessalonians chapter 4 because the Apostle Paul develops the theme of the blessed hope more fully here. In 1 Thessalonians chapter 4 and verse 13, But I would not have you to be ignorant, brethren, concerning them which are asleep, that ye sorrow not, even as others which have no hope. You see, the Apostle Paul, as he went forth preaching the gospel of the grace of God, as souls were one to Christ, one of the first things he committed to them was the truth of the blessed hope. Now you can see the wisdom of God in that, and perhaps it's a pattern we should follow as well. Here you have these new believers in Christ who will struggle at first in their faith, who are going to receive a great opposition from family and friends to this newfound truth that they're saved from their sins. And what better way to hold them up than to give them hope from the very start that God loves you and that Christ is going to come again to take you unto himself to glory. You see, Paul gave them something to look forward to and to rest in. But as it was Paul's custom, after he finished, preaching the gospel at Thessalonica, he moved on to the next city. He was the itinerant preacher. He was the evangelist. He was the apostle. So he kept moving on, spreading the good news of Christ and him crucified. And in the course of time, some of the saints at Thessalonica, who were apparently elderly at the time, started to die and pass away. And some of their loved ones who were saved were troubled by that. Well, does that mean that now they've missed the secret coming of Christ? Have they missed the blessed hope? And notice what the apostle says, how he consoles them. But I would not have you to be ignorant, brethren. They were ignorant of something. There was something they didn't fully comprehend. And so Paul's writing to them to console them and to give them a further revelation. And notice that he goes on to say, concerning them which are asleep, that ye sorrow not even as others which have no hope. Now when you see that term asleep in the scriptures, 
it's not referring to soul sleep. Rather, it's referring to these natural bodies, these tents. Whenever we die, this tabernacle is laid back into the dust of the earth. The soul and the spirit at the moment of death return to God who gave them. And if we're saved, to be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. And so we go into what we call today a disembodied state. Your life, the real you, is in that soul and spirit. And the moment that death places its icy grip on your shoulder, death means simply separation. The soul and spirit separate from the body. And the body has the appearance of what? Being asleep. Resting. And in verse 14, Paul says, If we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so them also which sleep in Jesus will God bring with him. Now you will note here that the apostle gives some limitation as to who is going to be included in the rapture of the church. Not all believers are going to be raptured when the trump sounds. The prophetic saints back here, Abraham's not going to be raised and raptured. Peter, James, and John aren't going to be raised and raptured at the blessed hope. Only the members of the church, which is his body. All right? Now, I base that conclusion on verse 14. If we believe that Jesus died and rose again, have not we seen in our study that that's the terms of salvation whereby we're saved? So Paul puts some limitations here as to who's going to make up this great throng of saints at the rapture. And basically what he is saying is from the day of his conversion, until when the trump sounds in this parenthetical period of grace, only the members of the body of Christ are going to be raised at the rapture. And only we who are believers, who are alive and remain, that one last generation will be caught off of the earth to be with the Lord. Now, the Lord's return here is imminent. And what we mean by that is that it could take place at any moment. Before this session is out, the trump could sound and we could all be in glory that quickly. In a moment of a twinkling of an eye. There are no signs. There are no wonders. There are no times and no seasons. This is the pre-tribulational rapture of the church here. It's the secret coming of Christ for his own. And in verse 15, For this we say unto you by the word of the Lord, that we which are alive and remain unto the coming of the Lord shall not precede them which are asleep. For the Lord himself shall descend from heaven with a shout, with the voice of the archangel and with the trump of God. And the dead in Christ shall rise first. 
Then we which are alive and remain shall be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air, and so shall we ever be with the Lord. Wherefore, comfort one another with these words. That's a great portion of Scripture. And notice how Paul gives the chronological order of events that are going to take place. The day that Christ returns for us, he's going to appear in the upper atmosphere. But the world's not going to see him. I don't think the world will be able to look up and see Christ there in the heavenlies. But we'll see him. Because the dead in Christ are going to rise first. And you say, how is that possible? For a body that has been laid back into the dust of the earth to ever live again. Job asked that question. The Corinthians were the skeptics of their day. That's impossible. Well, first of all, nothing is impossible with God. Let's remember that to begin with. But you know, there's a, a principle in operation here in creation. Maybe you've studied about some of these things. But according to the second law of thermodynamics, Nothing in God's creation is ever lost. You cannot annihilate matter. Now, this is a scientific principle that I'm giving you here. This isn't theology. This is science at this point. You cannot annihilate or destroy matter. You can only change its form. We live in a closed system. And whenever I hear about someone who has died and they've cremated them and they've placed all their ashes in a little vial and they've taken it up 30,000 feet and they're flying over the ocean and they're sprinkling along, there, God will never find me. But what they fail to realize, it's still within his creation. If we burn this building down to the ground, there's still a pile of rubble and ashes, isn't there? And you can take those ashes and scatter them in that different form all over St. Paul. And a thousand years from now, those atoms and molecules are still there. And you know what God's going to do in relation to these bodies? He's just going to gather it back up and speak and raise us from the dead. Now think with me a moment. What did God create man from in the beginning? Dust. Now if he could create us from the dust in the beginning, he can raise this pile of dust at the end of time as we know it. That's your hope. You have the hope of the resurrection. My hope isn't to be with Christ in a disembodied state. I'm glad I'm going to be there with him to be absent from body is to be present with him. But my true hope is the resurrection of this body. And I think our identities will be preserved in the resurrection. We'll be a little better looking. <laughs> Some of us have a little more hair, maybe. But, yeah. <laughs> 
but the identities will preserve. We'll know one another in the resurrection. What's the purpose if we don't? Then after the dead in Christ rise first and are caught into the presence of Christ, unseen to the world, then we which are alive and remain shall be caught up together with them in the clouds. So there's one generation that's going to be left whenever the trump sounds and this rapture takes place when God completes his plans and purposes for the body of Christ. Now what generation that will be, we have absolutely no way of knowing. Because you see, it's the secret coming of Christ. It's his imminent return. We have no way of knowing whether that will be tomorrow, whether that will be 50 years from now, or whether that will be 1,000 years from now. God's been long-suffering for nearly 2,000. He's liable to go for 2,000 more years. And he can, because he's within this parenthetical period, you see. So we're caught up and changed if we're that generation. It's like the old preacher said, it's a good thing we're all going to be changed on the way up, or there'd be a riot. (laughs) To live with Christ in glory is one thing, but to live with the saints here is completely another. (laughs) It's another story. Then in verse 18, wherefore comfort one another with these words. I like how Paul says that. He also says it down in verse 9, in chapter 5. First Thessalonians 5, 9. For God hath not appointed us to wrath, but to obtain salvation by our Lord Jesus Christ, who died for us, that whether we wake or sleep, we should live together with him. Wherefore, comfort yourselves together and edify one another, even as also ye do. You know what Paul is saying here? Notice how he says, For God hath not appointed us unto wrath, but to obtain salvation or deliverance. Through whom? Through our Lord Jesus Christ. What's going to take place here is Christ is going to return before God pours out his wrath in the tribulation period. This is what's next on God's order of prophetic events. Tribulation. But Paul says we've been delivered from the wrath of God to come. And we've been delivered by the Lord Jesus Christ because he's going to appear up here in glory and take us out before that dreaded day of the Lord begins. And you know what Paul says? Wherefore comfort one another with these words. He could comfort those at Thessalonica. We can comfort you as members of the body of Christ that you're not going through one moment of the tribulation period to come. You're going to be removed before that terrible, terrible day that God will rain judgment upon this earth. Now, if we were going through the tribulation period, we couldn't say that to you. So we believe in what is known as the pre-tribulational rapture of the church. That's our blessed hope. And it's only taught by Paul. 
So believers are going to be cut off of the earth and the unbeliever is going to be left on the earth to go through the coming tribulation period. You say, oh, well, that's taught in the gospel. Why, Matthew 24 says that. Let's go back there. Well, I don't know how many times I've come back here on this question. Matthew's 24 is falling out of my Bible. That's how many times I've had to address this question. Matthew 24, in verse 37. But as the days of Noah were, so shall also the coming of the Son of Man be. For as in the days that were before the flood, they were eating and drinking and marrying and giving in marriage until the, the day that Noah entered into the ark and knew not until the flood came and took them all away. So also shall the coming of the Son of Man be. Then shall two be in the field, for one shall be taken and the other left. Two women shall be grinding at the mill, one shall be taken and the other left. Watch therefore, for ye know not what hour your Lord doth come. Bang. They close the Bible. There's the rapture of the church. One taken, one left. So much for your dispensational scheme of things, they say. Uh, whoa, wait a minute. Let's look at this a little more closely. Notice what the Lord says in Matthew 24:37. But as the days of Noah were, so shall also the coming of the Son of Man be. So he uses the days of Noah as a backdrop and a pattern to his second coming to the earth. And he says there's a lot of similarities between the two great events. Noah was a preacher of righteousness. And he preached about the impending judgment of God to fall upon mankind. That God was going to open the windows of heaven and break up the subterranean waters of the deep and a universal flood is going to cover the earth. And did they have a good time with Noah? Rain? Water falling from heaven? Back in that dispensation, it never rained. The earth was watered by a mist that came up from the earth. They never saw a thundercloud. They never heard thunder. They never saw lightning. They never saw rain or water fall from the heavens as we have. And so here's Noah talking about the world going to be inundated with water. And they laughed him to scorn. They had a good time with Noah. But Noah believed God. God told him to build an ark. And I want you to go in there and take your family and anyone else who will believe. Take him into the ark. And so Noah worked over a hundred years on that ark. And during that time, Year after year after year, he preached the word. And he foretold about that judgment to come. And when it was all said and done, only eight souls, Noah and his wife, his three sons and their three wives, entered into the safety of that ark. And it says, God shut them in. 
and the windows of open heaven opened, and the waters from the deep broke up. And when that water started falling from the skies, the unbelievers ran to that ark, and you can be sure they were pounding on it to get in. But it was too late. You see, God doesn't give second chances when it comes to salvation. He didn't back then, and he doesn't today. If you die in your sins, then you're going to reap the eternal consequences in the lake of fire. That's why we beg you today, if you don't know Christ, to believe on the Lord Jesus Christ, that he died for your sins and rose again before it's too late. So as we look at Noah's day here, notice in verse 38, for in the days of Noah they were before the flood eating and drinking and marrying and giving and marriage, all that stuff and a good time until the day that Noah entered into the ark. They probably weren't even aware that Noah went in there and knew not until the flood came and took them all away. So also shall the coming of the Son of Man be. Now I ask you, who was taken off of the earth in the days of Noah? The believer or the unbeliever? The unbeliever. So it was the unbeliever who was swept away in the judgment of the flood, and it was the believer, Noah and his family, and the safety of the ark that remained on the earth and went into the new world. You see, it's a little snapshot of the new world to come. And notice... What the Lord says at the end of verse 39, So shall also the coming of the Son of Man be. Then shall two be in the field, one shall be taken, and the other left. And you see that word taken there? You need to circle it. It means to be taken violently. Ripped from the mooring. And so basically what the Lord is saying is, just as it was in the days of Noah, when I come back, when I come back right here, I'm not coming as the God of grace. I'm coming as the judge of all the earth. And I'm going to take all unbelievers and I'm going to cast them into outer darkness, just as in the days of Noah. Two are going to be in the field. One will be taken, the unbeliever, and cast out. And one will be left, the believer in Messiah, to go into the blessing of the kingdom. Fits perfect, doesn't it? This is not the rapture of the church, the body of Christ here. It could not possibly be. You know why? Because it was still a secret hidden in the mind of God when the Lord spoke these words to his disciples. So as we look here at our board, we have these prophetic events and the second coming of Christ foretold by Enoch, who was the seventh from Adam, of when Christ would return to the earth here in judgment. But you see, we're a part of this parenthetical period right here, according to Paul's revelation. We're a part of this mystery program. But if you take this out off of the board here, what you have is the next order of events after the rapture is the seven-year tribulation and then the second coming of Christ. Now, these two comings must be distinguished. 
You'll remember at the rapture, believers are caught off of the earth and the unbeliever left to go into the judgment of this tribulation. But now let's look at the second coming of Christ more closely. Notice in Matthew 24 in verse 27, the Lord says here in the Olivet Discourse, For as the lightning cometh out of the east and shineth even unto the west, so shall also the coming of the Son of Man be. Boy, he even tells them what way he's coming. Coming from the east, through the eastern gate at Jerusalem. For wheresoever the carcass is, there will the eagles, or the vultures, be gathered together. So the Lord's going to gather them in the valley of Megiddo. And there's going to be one great last battle at the end of the tribulation period. It's called the Battle of Armageddon. When the Antichrist and his evil forces will come against the children of Israel. And as they're coming toward Jerusalem and the land of Palestine, they stop at Megiddo and someone's going to meet them there before they get to Jerusalem. And in verse 29, immediately after the tribulation of those days shall the sun be darkened and the moon shall not give her light and the stars shall fall from heaven and the powers of the heavens shall be shaken. Sounds like signs, miracles, and wonders to me, doesn't it to you? So preceding the second coming of Christ to the earth, they will be able to look up into the heavens and they will see these signs in heaven above. The sun's going to be darkened. The moon will not give her light. It will turn to blood, as Peter says. And the stars are going to fall from the heavens and the powers of the heavens shall be shaken. The very foundations are rocking here. They're feeling the earth shake beneath their feet. They're looking up and the sun is darkened and they see the moon in the evening is the color of blood. These are all the notable signs in the day of the Lord, just preceding the second coming of Christ to the earth. So they'll be able to look up and know that their redemption is drawing nigh. In fact, I think they'll be able to narrow down the second coming of Christ probably within days and perhaps even weeks of when he'll come back. But apparently there must be a pause between verse 29 and 30 because no man knows the exact hour or the exact day except the Father who is in heaven. So between verses 29 and 30, perhaps there's one day or three days or one week. For sure, it's a very short period of time perhaps a month. But the point is this. They will actually be able to narrow the time period down that close. That they know he's on the threshold of his return. And then shall appear the sign of the Son of Man in heaven. So now we have another sign. The sign of the Son of Man appears in heaven. We don't know what that sign is. Some have suggested that it's the cross. We have no way of knowing. But God said, I'll speak to Israel with signs. 
and whatever that sign is, they know what it means. Then shall all the tribes of the earth mourn, and they shall see the coming of the Son of Man in the clouds of heaven with power and great glory. What a scene that's going to be. Here we are in the valley of Megiddo, the Antichrist and his forces that are probably without number. As far as you can see, you can see enemies. And Israel in the land, in hiding in the wilderness, God protecting her supernaturally. And they come to Megiddo, to the battle of Armageddon, and all of a sudden the heaven opens up, and there's the sign of the Son of the coming of man, and the Son of Man returns in glory, in power, visibly, for all to see. Every eye shall see him at that day. So when he returns here, this is the visible return of Christ to the earth. And he literally will come to the earth, and according to Zechariah, his feet shall stand on the Mount of Olives. You see, that's where he ascended from in prophecy. Remember? He ascended from the Mount of Olives. And what did the angel say to the disciples? Well, just as you've seen him go, he's going to come in like manner, visibly, in power and glory. And he's going to fight as a mighty man of war on behalf of his people Israel. And he quite literally is going to crush his enemies beneath his feet. And the blood, it says in the book of Revelation, will run to the horse's bridle in that valley. And then, as he overthrows the kingdoms of this world, the word of the patriarchs and the prophets will be realized in this thousand-year kingdom on the earth. And so the unbelievers are taken and swept off into eternity and judgment. And the believers, just like on the days of Noah, are left to go back into the kingdom here. And so they enter into a time of joy and blessing. And that lasts for 1,000 years, during which time Satan is bound. Now there's other things that transpire in here, but then the next major event is the white throne judgment when all unbelievers must appear before God. All right, we're going to stop there. We don't want you to become too weary here. But thanks be unto God, we have the blessed hope. And we have been delivered from the wrath to come. And that's based on the word of God. Don't let anyone ever take that hope from you. It's your blessed hope. Cling to it. Because the days are growing more and more evil. We're going to, as Christians, I think, suffer more and more persecution. You say, well, Pastor, you just said we weren't going through the tribulation period. Well, no, that's God's time of wrath. We may experience the wrath of man before it's all over. We may suffer, as Paul says, persecution. The godly shall suffer persecution. That's just like that. Right. So... In the end, we may not even be able to meet freely like this before the rapture of the church. We may be driven underground like the early church was back in Paul's day. But we have been delivered 
from the wrath of God to come. And that's much to be grateful for. Just read the book of Revelation if you want to know what's coming. All right, let's close with a word of prayer, then we'll leave a few moments for questions. Father, we thank thee for this time together. We thank thee for this blessed event that will soon take place. May you help us to live in light of the rapture. May we patiently wait for thy return, and yet at the, some, at the same time not become weary in well-doing. Help us win souls to Christ and have a burden for lost souls. Give us a fuller knowledge of thy word, and we'll give thee all the honor and the glory. In Christ's name we pray, amen.